Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Here in the seventh inning, the Yankees are trailing 2 nothing. That is the key man. Hit high in the air to left field. Going to the corner, Yaspinski. It's over the wall. It's a home run for Bucky Dent. Yankees get the lead 3-2. Deep to left, Yastrzemski will not get it, it's a home run! A three-run home run for Bucky Denton, the Yankees now lead it by a score of three to two. Well, the last guy on the ball club, you'd expect to hit a home run, Jessett went into the screen, Bucky Denton. Hi everyone, I'm Bucky Dent. Welcome to this week's episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. With me right now is Al Santaseri, the editor-in-chief of Yankees Magazine. Hi, Al. Hey, Bucky. And we also have John Schwartz, the deputy editor. Hi, John. What's going on, Bucky and Al? Doing great, man. Looking forward to talking to Chris Chambliss. So excited to have Chris coming on this week. Yes, I'm excited, and let's go, let's go talk to him about his big home run in 76. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming on, man. We got Al and we got John. And uh, how you doing, buddy? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing great, man. How you holding up in this pandemic stuff? I'm telling you, I'm, I'm getting tired of watching the news and the movies. I'm, I, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out more things to do. I'm walking my dogs. I'm doing okay. <laughs> that's that's what we do. We ride our bike and, uh, uh, and watch baseball. I mean, it, it, it's a little bit different watching it now with no crowds and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm trying to struggle through it. I know it. I know what you mean. But, uh, you know, we wanted to, you know, talk a little bit about your career and uh, all the things that you accomplished, you know, in, in baseball. And I was just telling Al and John that, you know, not only did we play play together, but we coached together and uh, with the Cardinals in uh, 91 to 94 and then again in Cincinnati. And uh, like I said, tell everybody, when you coach, you're, you're, you're not there very long. <laughs> You know, I know it. Yeah, it's it's we get it's, fired. Uh, we get fired pretty quick because it's we somebody's get fired ball. real quick. <laughs> I went to Cardinals in '93, and uh, I was there until '90 '93, '4, and '5 with you, and uh, then then that's when I went to the Yankees with Joe '96 to 2000, and then we joined up again with, in Cincinnati. I was Cincinnati '90. Uh, let's see, 2003, '4, and '5, or '4, '5, and '6. I think something like that. Right, and then I joined them in uh, 06 and uh, 07, and then when Jerry got fired, uh, I got let go also. But, uh, you know, I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed coaching, and, I'm, I, you know, of course, you know, when you went back in after you left there, I mean, 
holy cow, you know, with the, you know, you went back to the Yankees and had all those great years, not only as a player, but as a coach, you know, you were in that great run in 96, you know, and I was in Texas and you guys kept beating us. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Listen, that was a highlight of my uh, post-playing career was, was my coaching. Uh, I did eight straight years with Joe, with Joe Torrey, as you know. Joe, Joe, Joe brought me there to St. Louis. And then he, uh, when he went to the Yankees in 96, he brought me there. So that was uh, three years with St. Louis and five with the Yankees. And boy, what a team. I mean, you know, when you're uh, that O'Neill and, and uh, Bernie and, and Tino crowd, uh, what, what, what a great group of guys. And, and I was just lucky enough to, to, to be there and uh, was part of four world championships in the five years I was there. You know, Chris, I think I think you have a good ability to offer some perspective here on something like this because I think for a lot of Yankees fans, you know, what they remember of Joe Torre coming to town is obviously, you know, the coolest Joe headlines and things like that. Obviously, this is a guy you believed in and you were following here. What was your feeling when you started seeing some of that stuff right at the start there? Well, you know, uh, I... I had had been around enough to to know what the press does you know the press can write a lot of stuff that not always true and and it, you you take it with a grain of salt and and that's kind of how you felt you know we we were just starting out with with the Yankees but I had been with Joe so I knew his uh his reputation and the way he handled players I don't know there's some about him about the, the way he commands respect and he really did challenge those players to be he almost laid it in their hands as to how, how they wanted to uh, what their club to be and their goals. And, and it, it, it just really clicked well. And what a great group of guys. And I talk about that team a lot. Do those, do those teams remind you of the teams that we played on in 77, 78? I mean, I, I know, you know, some of the characteristics, you know, you had some fiery guys, you know, like, Paul O'Neill and Tino was a little bit of a fiery guy, you know, but teams that we played on, we had some guys that, you know, were some characters that had some fire in them. And, and uh, so I was just wondering, was there a similarity to those teams that you coached in the ones you played on? Obviously, from a talent standpoint, there, there, there's a lot of comparisons, you know, when you go player by player. But, but, but basically, the, the, the biggest similarity is, is the goals, you know, that, that, that the guys have and and the attitude that they take towards uh, towards the game, and and they did it together. You know, you can have, uh, and you know, you know, Bucky knows this better than anybody. Uh, the the issues we had in our club, somebody doesn't get along or whatever. But but as soon as the game starts, it was like you know there was one purpose to 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 get the job done. And um, that group in '96 to 2000, they they had a few issues, but they they had really a focus of they they almost didn't want to be around the press, especially a guy like Jeter. You know, you, you would see them uh, after games. They would take their clothes out, out of the main dressing room and go into the training room because the press can't go in. And they would sometimes dress in there just to get away from the questions and all the stuff about the press. And I thought that was really important. And, and Joe did a good job of, of deferring a lot of that press uh, coverage uh, on the players. The players just wanted to play the game. And, and, you know, when Reggie came, we, we, we already had that already built in because when Reggie <laughs> came right. to the club, every, all the press went over to Reggie. And, and so the rest of us could just relax and, and, you know, didn't have to feel all those crazy questions. But uh, 
Uh, I, I think that has a lot to do with it. The, pre the press can really put a lot of pressure on the guys, and we knew how to stay away from pressure. And, and as, as Bucky knows this, we, we, we did it with a lot of humor. We, we had some guys that were so much fun that, that knew how to break the ice when, when things were going tough. Do you think the teams that you coached in those great years, in that great one run, did they have the same kind of humor? Did they have guys that were like Sparky Lyle and Lou and Catfish and, you know, even yourself? You know, I always said, you know, I had Willie on a couple of weeks ago, you know, we were talking about that 78 team, you know, that you, myself, and Willie and Roy were kind of like the quiet guys. But, you know, if somebody you know, started getting on you, you know, you, you could fire back that, you know, Willie would, you know, Willie was funny and, and you were funny, but you know, a lot of people didn't realize, you know, that we were kind of like the quiet ones on the team, but did they have that kind of, you know, sense of humor? Uh, it's a little bit different. They did have, they did have uh, some guys that had a good sense of humor, but our, our humor was, <laughs> you had to have a pretty thick skin with, with the humor. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because, <laughs> You know, if we had if we had a bad day at the at the, at the plate or the game and stuff, you know, your teammates would actually get on you. They, hey man, what were you doing? You know, you struck out four times or something. You know, and the guys would make a joke of it, and it would really relax you. The players of of the '96 group, they they didn't have that kind of humor. They didn't get on themselves about about their performance on the field, but they did know how to have fun, and and they had it in different ways. So our, our fun was was. <laughs> We we were personal. We we get on you, and yeah. and you had to have pretty thick skin to to play with us. And and, and when 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 you understand what it was all about, you know you you kind of uh, used it to relax yourself and and not not to take yourself so serious. Right. When you guys look back at you know that that great run in the late nineties, you know there's there's Hall of Famers. You know Joe Torre's in the Hall of Fame. Derek Jeter's going to be in the Hall of Fame. Mariano Rivera. And there's iconic players. Posada, Bernie Williams, guys like that. You know, from somebody who was a, a huge part of it uh, for four years on the coaching staff, who would you say are maybe the unsung heroes, guys that, you know, you might not have won without them, but that aren't going to the Hall of Fame and might not be going to Monument Park or anything like that? The biggest name to come up with that would be Bernie, because Bernie Williams, you know, they had the core, what is it, the core four or something, you know, with, with, uh, with Jeter and, and Pettit and, and Mariano. Somehow they left out Bernie and 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 that group because uh, Bernie Williams came up through the organization also and and he was a tremendous uh, asset to the club. I, th I think one of the driving forces of the club was 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 O'Neill. Paul had this fiery uh, attitude and Bucky would would appreciate this because O'Neill when when he would you know make outs or if he had a rough day or something he was like a madman. He would throw stuff around and all this stuff, but at the same time he would do that. Uh, all of us, we'd be right in front of him and we'd be laughing, you know. And, you know, he knew how to take that uh, uh, with a grain of salt. He knew that he was that way. And and um, and so I, I think uh, the answer to your question, I, I, I would point to O'Neill and, and Bernie uh, with, with, with guys that, you know, really were a core part of the club. All, all of them were, as you know, you know, Jeter. I mean, as a group, they, they were just so, so important together. And they were so unselfish. I really think that Paul O'Neill would have fit so well on some of those late 70s teams that you guys played on. I would have loved to have seen him and Thurman kind of going at it together, him and Reggie, things like that. And Catfish. That, that would have been Oh, yeah. Fun. And Vanilla. <laughs> oh, oh, my Vanilla God. Vanilla Catfish. Oh, boy. 
Yeah, see, he, he reminded me of Pinello, you know, in the other dugout when I was on the visiting side, you know, the stuff that I would see him do, you know, he would he would remind me a lot of Lou because, you know, Lou would go, you know, and he would throw something or kick a water cooler or throw his helmet, you know, and, you know, yell at the fans and, you know, throw tennis balls at the chicken and stuff like that. Well, you know? don't so, don't forget that Pinello managed him. That's they right. knew each they knew each other. And 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 they and they hated each other too. They didn't like each other, you know. When, whenever Lou would face O'Neill, so he, he'd probably get knocked down there once in a while. So, and then and as you know, Lou got his thing from Billy Martin. Right. That fiery attitude is, is a real thing. Going back to playing and, and coaching, but you know, you're, you're talking about being patient and stuff like that. You've seen as a hitting coach the change of what's happened in sports, you know, as far as now it's talk about launch angles. They don't worry about striking out as long as they hit the ball in the seats and stuff like that. You know, when you were a hitting coach and you were preaching certain things, you know, now you see the difference in, in the game materializing. What do you think about the hitters today, Chris? I always thought that the power hitters that that, that hit for high average – were the most dangerous guys, you know, because uh, because they're they're tough to pitch to. And like I said before, th this group, you know, O'Neill and Tino and guys were were just like that. They would hit for power, but at the same time, you know, they wouldn't swing at a lot of bad pitches. And and a lot of hitting philosophies say, you know, well, you hit for power, you know, you're going to sacrifice a low average. Well, when I taught hitting. I believe you can hit for power and and hit for a good average and and swing at strikes and 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 not and and not give the pitchers so much a leeway in swinging at bad balls and so that that was kind of like the way I taught hitting and the way I kind of grew up because my my weakness when I came up as a hitter was power I didn't I didn't hit for a lot of power uh, overall in my career but I strived for it uh, but I hit for a good average because I waited on the ball real well. Well, you were a good hitter, period, you know, because you would, you know, with two strikes, you, you had no problem hitting the ball the other way. You know, you sit that line drive went over to shortstop's head and hit the ball the other way and, and, and put the ball in play and you didn't strike out a lot, you know. So, um, but today it seems like it's more accepted now, you know, that, hey, you know, everybody's on one side of the field and I'm still going to try and hit the ball through them and stuff like that. And, you know, with the launch angle and trying to hit home runs, uh, um, it's just, uh, you know, like you said, back when we started, even when I was a rookie, you know, you were before me. But when I came up, I mean, striking out was like, oof, you needed to put the ball in play. And, 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 and a lot of the a lot of the big hitters did that. I mean, you know, the Olivas, the Rod Carews, you know, the guys like that. I mean, they 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 put the ball in play also. That's true. So then here's my question, because it really seems like. And obviously, I mean, just the nature of the 2020 season, we're recording this, you know, and it's going to go live a couple of days from now. And that's like, you know, a tenth of the season. So maybe things will change between now and then. But I'm interested from your guys' perspective, because you guys know hitting and you guys know coaching also. If you look at a lot of the problems that this Yankees team is having right now, weirdly, it's on what would be classified as meatballs. Somehow, a lot of these guys just are looking at fastballs right in the heart of the plate and not being able to do anything with him. What happens over the course of whether it's how you're preparing in general or just something getting to your head that makes that pitch something that's going to flummox you the way it is right now, say Gary Sanchez or uh, Mike Talkman, things like that? The biggest issue with that is 
when when a hitter is in a slump, especially home run guys, and you know the Yankees are, you know, let's let's face it, you know, they've got some tremendous power, and they hit a lot of home runs. They get the the way to get those guys out is is to flip them a couple of breaking balls and make them swing at bad balls. And so what happens is players start get a little uh, what I call in between, which means that you're in between swinging at a breaking ball or swinging at a fastball. And Bucky knows this well as anybody. What that does, especially the the velocity that's that's happening today. I mean, these guys throw pretty hard. So when they throw a fastball, you're kind of in between fastball and breaking ball. You're in a heap of trouble because you're you're going to freeze that at a fastball. It'll be right down the middle. But but you're kind of worried that that it might be a breaking ball. And so that that that's where pitch recognition comes in. And there's a lot of drills that we w- would do to help hitters, you know, wait on the ball yet yet understand that that they're looking for a fastball, and and not 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 for a breaking ball or not be in between. So then this is a perfect world question, which <laughs> Lord knows it's not right now. But it would seem to me that having problems of that nature, where it's the meatballs that are causing you the trouble. That seems like it should be something easier to work your way out of than if it's, you know, you're just making terrible contact on breaking balls, but you can't stop swinging at them. Is that oversimplified or, or would you say that there's some merit to that? Well, I would say like 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 you, Chris, you know, I mean, look, you you're, you go up there and you're looking for a fastball. And when you start to struggle, your mentality starts to change a little bit to where you start to try to hit the ball the other way. Look, when you're feeling good and stuff like that, you can go up there and get a pitch and, you know, and turn on it and stuff like that. But I, I don't think, you know, at least from what I'm seeing, that the mentality of the hitters have said, I need to start trying to use the whole field and go the other way. And that's what you were really good at. I mean, you'd turn on a fastball and hit it in the seats, but yet when you got in situations that two strikes are behind in the count, you didn't mind taking a ball and, and hitting it to left field or left center field to put the ball in play. And that's the biggest thing that I see is that they don't want to give in to try and maybe hit the ball the other way. You know, I understand that. But the basic thing that people think when they, when they hit is that, okay, you're, you, you want to hit a ball a long way. So your number one thought is I got, I'm, I'm going to pull it and I'm going to hit it deep. And, and, and that's how, that's how I'm going to do it with every pitch. Well, as you know, playing like, like we did, you can't hit every pitch and pull them like that because you, you have to, you know, if a pitch is away from you and, and you, and it's a strike and you have to hit it, you know, take it the other way. That's true. And, and so, but hitters have to learn to trust hitting the ball the other way. And, and really the true power hitters, I mean, I, I work with Ken Griffey Jr. And, and, and really with Strawberry at one time. Those guys in practice, they would be driving balls the opposite way as deep as they can. And, and if a ball was in the right location, they would pull it. But, but it's a way. They, then, then they would also take it the other way. And, and so power hitters use the field. Uh, even Reggie uh, spoke on that. Even though you know, he had a lot of strikeouts, but he, he hit a lot of uh, home runs the opposite way. And, and so most power hitters – don't don't believe that they don't believe they can drive the ball uh, all over the field, and I don't know the right-handers in, in Yankee Stadium. They, they hit a ball to right field. It, it it's like a left-hander hit the ball, and so you could take advantage of that. It, it is important to to know how to use the whole field, and really it'll raise your average if you do it the right way. Right, 
I would have loved to hit in some of these parks. I know you would. But, you know, I mean, the one we coach in Cincinnati. Oh my God, the ball just flies out of there. Oh, that's uh, crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, balls just jumped. It, it, you know, jumped out of that ballpark. You know, uh, it reminded me a little bit of Yankee Stadium at right center field. You remember those <laughs> balls used to just fly out of right center. They, field? they sure do. That's exactly right. And it's even more so now. I don't know what it is. It's like a wind tunnel going out in that way. I got to say, between these parks and these balls, I think uh, there could have been a couple more deep to left if you were playing these days, Bucky. <laughs> yeah, you're right, you know. But, yeah, I think the balls are a little souped up too. I mean, come on, really. You guys I mean, would appreciate this. Bucky knows, just mentioned about Cincinnati. Okay, so I had Crin Griffey Jr. who loved to hit extra all the time. And you know how strong uh, Adam Dunn is. Oh, geez. And, and, Austin, and Austin Kearns was – the other outfield those three guys were very close friends and they were that was the starting outfield for Cincinnati so we're at that ballpark that Bucky's talking about and I don't know how how often almost almost not every day but almost every day Griff Jr. loved to hit extra and he brought those guys with him so think about the power of those guys taking batting practice in in that little ballpark in Cincinnati you know we'd have a couple guys that would shag and, and what they would do is they'd actually go right into the stands and, and wait for the balls because, because those guys are just bombing home runs left and right all over the field. They weren't trying to hit no singles. I tell you what, because Dunn was in my group and he used to hit them over the, the bleachers in right field out into that river. I mean, he, he had just some of the most unbelievable power I've ever seen. I mean, he just he hit them all over the place. That was fun to watch. Well, I remember a couple of years ago, I was doing a story about Aaron Judge, and I was talking a lot about his batting practice group, which I'm not going to get it right, but I think at the time it was like Matt Holliday and Aaron Judge and Gary Sanchez and, and things like that. And I was talking to the hitting coach at the time, Alan Cockrell, who was like, it's an expensive group. I mean, they would just lose so many balls, and you would have pitchers who were like volunteering to shag when they were hitting because they knew they'd have nothing to do. The balls were all going to go into the stands anyway. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I got to tell you a story, you know, back when we were, when we were playing, you know, Chris and I were playing back in 77, 78, we were in Cleveland and, and our team had been struggling a little bit. Snatch is going to get a big chuckle out of this one, you know, so they put all the names in a hat and, you know, they drew names and Chris got picked. He was batting eight. That night, and I said, I, I used to laugh because I said they didn't put my name in the hat because I had to bat ninth still, you know. But Chris, Chris, Chris wound up bat eight, and he what? You knocked in ten runs that night. And I said, you got a big man hitting behind you. <laughs> yeah, they looked and saw who so was on deck, and they know I did. They gave me something to hit. That was <laughs> yeah. that's a true story, though. We were struggling so bad, and Billy uh, just but but the one thing he did, he did put everybody's name in a hat. But Thurman was was always going to hit third, right? Thurman stayed in his spot, but he mixed everybody else up and just and just threw that names out there. And yeah, we scored a lot of runs that day. I that was one of the best days of my career. I, I appreciate you remembering that one. What is something it takes from a psychological standpoint to get going where you're able to turn things around when you're kind of so down, probably from from losing as, as many games as the Yankees have, especially when you didn't expect it. something like that. You know, I mean, Billy, you know, put everybody's name in a hat, put Thurman in the third spot, put me in nine and just kind of mixed everybody else up. And when you looked at the lineup, you know, um, I forgot who let off that night, but it was like a ridiculous lineup because, you know, Chris, I don't think he ever batted eighth and, and he's batting eighth <laughs> and it kind of just kind of 
loosens guys up, you know, and, and, and some of the other things I think, you know, the guys that I played for is, is sometimes you wouldn't take batting practice. Just say, hey, let's That's go. Right. Just show up at game time, be, you know, be ready to play and, and, and let's go get them, you know, to kind of take the pressure off of the grind of every day, you know, going out and hitting and stuff like that. And sometimes it would just loosen guys up, you know, and I know I did it a lot in the minor leagues when you're traveling around flying and riding buses and things like that. I would just say, hey, you know, we're not hitting today. We're going to just strap it on and go get them. That is the truth. And I, I did the same thing. And I'll give you one when I was with the Braves, because hum, humor, humor does it every time. But this one here happened with, you know, no, nobody planned this, this humor. Okay, I was we were with the Braves, and this was in, in 1982. We won the West that year. But in the summer, uh, we were in a terrible slump. I mean, we must have lost 20 out of, out of 22 games or something. And, and this particular night, uh, Pascual Perez, who was one of the top pitchers, was to be the starter that night. And so he got in a car in Atlanta. I don't know if you know Atlanta. It has 75, 85 go right through the middle of town, which is right by uh, the ballpark downtown. And then there's a 285 that circles the city. Well, it was early in the season enough that he didn't know how to get to this, the ballpark. And so he got directions and they told him 75, 85 to, you know, to, to 20 and you get right to, you're right at the stadium. So he thought that it was 285. So he gets, so he gets in his car and he's driving around uh, and he's actually circling the city of Atlanta and, and he's driving, he's driving and, and he gets to a point where he runs out of gas. So he, so he pulls in a gas station, and, and he asked the guy for some gas, and, and he went to pull his wallet, and he, he didn't have a wallet, okay? didn't have any money, nothing. So luckily, the, the gas station guy knew who he was. That's Pascual Perez. And so he gave him his gas and gave him directions to the stadium. Of course, he got to the stadium, and it was like 10 minutes before game time. And he's the starting pitcher. Right? No, he, they need – they needed like an hour or half hour to get ready to start the game. So he wasn't able to start the game. So Phil Necro, who, you know, knuckleball pitcher, right? It takes nothing for him to warm up. He warms up and he starts the game on like two or three rests or something. And he pitches a, a great game. And we, and we, it was a, it was a victory and we won. And, we, and we, it, it kind of ended our slump and we started winning after that. You know, so they call uh, Pasquale I-285 to that. <laughs> yeah. So we should so we should hope for one of the Yankees starting pitchers to get, you know, on the major Deegan or something and just start heading north. Yeah. Yeah, he'll yeah. he'll end up in Boston somewhere. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, you know, you know how you found out about me, my nickname uh, being Hooks with Cerrone last week. Well, you know, Chris's nickname is Snatcher. Because he used to snatch all those bad throws we used to make over there to him at first base. He, we got him a gold glove in 1978, picking all that stuff for us. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that you guys didn't get gold gloves because you were you were you did everything too easy, and and that's the truth. We got beat out by some guys. I got you know Belanger, and then of course you know Trammell, 
Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I think uh, Whitaker and Frank White, you know, but, you know, uh, we were we were chuckling about that. And then I saw that and I said, Dad, God, Snatcher won a gold glove in 78, picking all that crap for us, man. That's <laughs> that's pretty doggone good, you know. But uh, talking about home runs, you know, I, I, I got to talk about, you know, your home run in 76. I always tease, you know, guys, I was always teasing them about, you know, I was a rookie, you know, driving down the road and when, when he hit his home run and I almost wrecked my car because, you know, I'm such a big Yankee fan. But you, you got to talk about your home run because, you know, it's one of the, the greatest classic home runs in, in Yankee history because of, you know, what happened after you hit it trying to get to home plate. Yeah, that was a fun night. And uh, as, as, you, as you know, it was the culmination of, of a lot of stuff that happened. 76 was the first year that we went into – Yankee Stadium after it was refurbished, you know, when I was traded over, we were playing at Shea Stadium for two years uh, while they fixed up Yankee Stadium. So so here we are. We go into Yankee Stadium in 76 with Billy Martin as our manager. And it was just it was just like a dream come true. Anyway, the uh, home run was uh, at the end of that season. And, you know, with the with the tough series and tough season that we had against Kansas City. And and we had a three-run lead in, the, I think it was the seventh or eighth inning, and George Brett hit that three-run homer off of Grant Jackson to tie it, which uh, set up my at-bat, uh, the, the last of the ninth, with a, with a tie score. And, and it was just an amazing time because all the fans were, were anticipating that moment, and they threw toilet paper and junk all over the field. So Mark Littell was warming up. And, and, and it was kind of chilly. I thought, I, I remember it being cold. And, and so they, we had to wait until they picked up everything. And, and, but anyway, when he threw the first pitch to me, I hit it, hit a home run. Didn't know it was going to go over until it really went over because it barely scraped the fence, but it, but it got over the fence and, and that run around the bases was unbelievable. I touched first, I touched second and I, and I tripped uh, on, on a knee. And the first thing I could think of was, was all the people, because there were people were everywhere. And I thought they were going to get on top of me and, and bury me in the, in the dirt. And so I got up and, and, I, and I got to, when I saw third base, there was nothing but people around third base. So I immediately made a left-hand turn and went straight to the dugout. And, and what I learned later is, you know, Willie, Willie Randolph was behind me and he was just knocking people around. <laughs> Uh, you know, letting me get by. You're doing to, a pretty good job too. Now you were doing a pretty good job. Uh, yeah, I, I I ran over I, right in front of home, uh, right in front of the dugout, and and got into the clubhouse and and sure enough, we're you know we're going. Boy, did you touch? Did I touch home plate? You know, so so this is a true story. Uh, I went back out. I put a jacket on, and went back out to the field with a couple of cops with me. And we made our way through the crowd and we went up to home plate and looked down there and I was going to put my foot on it. And of course the base, the, 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 the plate was gone. It was, it was stolen. So I, I stepped my, oh my yeah, God. I put my foot on the, on, on there and, and we went back in. There's two, two real good stories from that because I, I still have the, uh, the bat and, and I did have the ball. I sold the ball, but the reason I had the ball was because the ball was not hit in the stands. It was hit in between the stands and the, and the fence. And, and there was a bunch of uh, New York city cops there. And one of them picked up the ball and brought it right into the clubhouse and gave it to me. Okay. That's number, that was number one. But the other story was unbelievable. Greg Nettles, 
who uh, Bucky knows is one of the quick, quick, quicker thinkers of all of us. I don't know how he does it. He, when I try, obviously I would hit the home run. I uh, somehow I dropped, I dropped the bat. It dropped it right on the field. Well, Greg went out there and picked up my bat, and he ran back into the the dugout and protected all of our equipment because we had our gloves and our and our, in our hat sitting right on the. In those days, you didn't have that fence in front of the dugout. It was our, it was our gloves and our hat sitting right out there. So uh, Greg was protecting all that stuff with my bat, <laughs> and I still have that bat today. They changed the rule. They they call it actually the Chris Chambliss rule. Yeah, <laughs> the umpire said under those circumstances that, that they, they would never turn that around. You know, if you, if you appeal that I didn't touch home plate and all that stuff. But yeah, that was that that, that rule became came out of that situation. I have to imagine a couple of years later, I think it's 1982 when you're watching uh, replays of the Cal Stanford game when, you know, the bands on the field. That must look pretty familiar to you, uh, trying to barrel your way through that situation. That's the truth. And but the big <laughs> the biggest contrast is, though, uh, if you if fast forward to to 96 and I'm the hitting coach and and they won the world championship and and you should have seen the security around that time when they when 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 the last out was made they had horses on the field and so so Wade Boggs was on top of one of the horses and riding it around the outfield but nobody could even come close to the field in those days. Actually, in 77, you know, I, I tell the story, you know, because of watching what you went through in 76. If you remember in 77, before the last out, Torres was on the mound, and I'm staying at shortstop, and I'm looking around, and I see all the people, you know, like you said, back then they ran on the field, you know. Right, right. And I'm looking, up and I'm going to go, am I going to run for Torres? Am I going to do what Chambliss did, have to fight my way to get off the field, you know, and uh, <laughs> that last out was made and there had to be 5,000 people on the field before the ball was caught. I mean, and here we go. And I remember, you know, what you were doing and, you know, trying to get through and people are grabbing your hats, your helmet, your, I mean, everything. I mean, it was, it was, it was, a, it was kind of scary to tell you the truth. It really was. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I, I imagine scary, but I don't know. And, and maybe this is just a guy who's never played baseball professionally, obviously. You know, I, how fun is it, though? I mean, I know you're scared and I get that it's not an ideal situation, but you also have to be thinking about what you just accomplished that whole way, right? That doesn't sink in until later. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're right about that. Um, you, know, once, you know, once you get into the clubhouse and you're, and you're celebrating, then you start saying, boy, look what happened here. And even years after that, you start to think about the significance of, of what went on. But, uh, but in the moments, like Bucky said, man, it, there, there was fear. I, I really had fear that, that I was going to be uh, trampled on and, and, and had, had my face in the dirt and couldn't, couldn't get up because I didn't want anybody jumping on top of me like that. You were very fortunate, you know, Willie and I were talking about this, you know, I never got a chance to go back, you know, because 96 was our chance. But of course, the Yankees were in that dynasty run. So coaching with Texas, we never made it. But you got a chance to go back. I mean, four years in a row. I mean, holy cow. What a treat that was, huh? It really was. It was, uh, yeah, it was uh, 96. And then we all, we, we, 97 was, you know, we were like one pitch away from, from going to World Series that year also. But, yeah, 96, 98, 99, 2000, uh, that was really a thrill. And uh, I think Willie and I are the only two guys that have those particular six rings, the 77, 78, and then, and then those four years. That's, that's six Yankee rings. That's, uh, 
it's just a, just a privilege to be a part of that. When you need two hands for your rings, uh, you, you are living pretty good. <laughs> That's like Yogi. He's got about 10. I hate wearing them anywhere. They're, they're so big. I, I don't want to wear them. And you go into a, a, a sports bar or something, you got this huge ring on. It's like it's a good conversation starter. It's like too much attention. Yeah, yeah it for is. sure. Yeah, it's a legacy piece for sure. Is there, is there you know, from that dynasty, when you look at, you know, what happened in 96, a lot of people talk about, man, if you guys didn't, you know, win it in 96, the Jim Laird's home run was such a, you know, such a kind of starting point for that, for that dynasty. Who knows what would have happened after that? Is there a carryover, do you feel like, if, if you guys didn't win it in 96, you know, would all those other championships have not have happened, do you think? Or, or is it kind of their, their individual lives? Not a chance. I, I, that club was going to win. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, games go here or there by, by a couple breaks. That's true. You get Sometimes you get a break and, you know, one, one, one play makes a difference between winning and losing. But uh, the makeup of that club, it, it, was just, it was just too well done. I mean, you look, look, look at the guys we had on the bench. I mean, over those years, we, we had guys like Strawberry, Tim Raines, uh, you know, Cecil Fielder. You know, th- those guys were bench players. And in fact, when Bog, that particular year, Wade Boggs was platooning with, uh, with, with uh, Hayes, Charlie Hayes at third base. I mean, we, we, the, the personnel there was just too strong. And, and then along with all that, you had the, those core players. So those guys were young. Jeter was just getting started. Um, you know, they, we, they had youth and, and they had experience all at the same time. And then, and, and Bucky knows this, you know, number one on, on these teams is pitching. You know, when, when you, when you talk about Cone and, and Pettit and, you know, later on we got Clemens, you know, they, they always had a strong pitching staff and, and, and that, that, that meant everything to the club. El Duque, think about all these pitchers. It's, it's just amazing. They, they would, we would have won. You know, even if we, you know, didn't get started with 96. So, Chris, take me to um, 1978 for a second, if you will, because Bucky Dent, good player, everything like that. But when he hits that home run, I imagine everyone in that dugout knows what it's like to hit a pretty cool home run. But no one knew quite like you did around baseball that year what it's like to hit that kind of home run. <laughs> what kind of memories did that bring back for you? And how did how did you respond to the whole thing? We were just excited because if I remember, Roy White and I were on base, and and uh, I had I had one of the best views because I was I was right at second base, so I, I had a I saw that pitch go right in there, and Bucky hit that ball when you hit, when you hit that ball up in, in Fenway, you know you 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 know it's either a double or a home run, it's one or the other, and and so um, I, I was just ecstatic, and of course that that was a game like no other game. Every play that's made, every ball that's hit to you, because you know you know it's, you're either going home or you're or, or you're going on. So it was just when you knew, you saw that home run hit 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 the net up there. It was like we were so happy and and just excited for Buck. It was great. But the difference was yours was a walk off. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. Mean, you, you you walked it off, and uh, man, I mean that that's that's something that just you know. It's really thrilling when you do something like that. But, you know, talking about talking about hitters and coaching and playing, as a coach, who was the best hitter that you ever coached? I got an idea. Wow. 
The best hitter I ever coached was probably um, uh, Griff Jr. That took longer for you to get to than I thought it would have. <laughs> yeah, I, I, mm-hmm. I already had it in my mind because we, <laughs> were, I, but, but, you know, we, we were together in Cincinnati, and without a doubt, I was going to say Kid Griffey Jr. was, you know, was was the one. But you know, I mean, he he was just amazing. You know, he was when I joined it. You know, he was at the latter part of his career, but I remember him, as, you know, as a kid because I had interviewed for the job in Seattle when. We, you know, we had traded Buner over there, and I had Buner, and then you know you had Junior, and that team was just blossoming and getting ready to be really good. But I mean, he was something special to watch, and 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 scary to watch when you're on the other side as a coach. And he's just such a class individual. I mean, that this is, this is this is the guy from a personality. You know, he was he treated everybody the same. He was just a wonderful person, and and just a great hitter along with it. Yeah, he was he was a special guy. As a player, you played with some great players. Who who's who's the best player you played with? Besides for Bucky Dent. <laughs> Besides <Yeah>. Buck. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, the best player I played with, man. Um, Probably be Thurman, I guess. You know, Thurman, and everybody asked me the question, who's the best clutch hitter I've ever seen? Thur- Thurman was the best clutch hitter I've ever played with. You know, you, you could, there were certain situations you, you just couldn't get Thurman out. And he was more than, than that. He was, he was our captain. You know, he, he, br- he brought everything there, there was to the game as far as uh, the attitude. And uh, he, he almost knew where all the players should be playing, you know, be – in positioning and stuff, so so I'd say Thurman was 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 probably the best. Well, when you when you guys talk about the the all time greats, you know, Bucky, you never faced him, obviously, but uh, Chris, you did have I think twenty five at bats against Tom Seaver, who obviously passed away recently. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I mean, there, there, I hate to say it, you know, there's a lot of guys, you know, you you're, you're going to lose people every so often. It's just the way the life cycle works, but. When you lose like an absolute first tier Hall of Famer like Tom Seaver, you know what do you think the game loses in a moment like that? He he was a legend, and and uh, not only not only that, he was a great promoter of the game too. Great personality, for sure. For sure. Yeah, he's a, he's a good person, and uh, sorry to see him go. He was he was a great pitcher. I faced him. Um, I think I faced him with the Reds. Those, those years we we're talking about, uh, not with the because the Mets in the other league. But but uh, I was I faced him, and he he threw really hard, and I mean he had that drop leg kick that 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 he had, and he stayed really low to the ground, and he, and he would just fire that ball, just a tremendous pitcher. I think I got a chance to face him in just spring training, you know, because I was in the America America League my my all, all my career. But you know there was another guy that you know passed away a few days after him. I thought was one of the all time greats too was Lou Brock. I mean, oh yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. You know, when we coached in Cincinnati, I mean in St. Louis, you know, he used to come around all the time and talk, you know. And uh, I remember asking him and talking to him about stealing a base, and he goes, "It's eleven strides in a slide." And I, I said, well, I said, what? And he goes, I take 11 strides and then I slide, you know, no, and I was like, oh my God, you know, that was his, that was his theory. But, you know, I mean, what a, what a class guy and a great guy um, he was, but, you know, and looking at the notes, you, you got a chance to see a pretty good guy start his career off in Atlanta too, Dale Murphy. Yeah, Dale Murphy and Bob Warner at the same time. Uh, both of those guys were uh, kind of like the, the uh, future of the ball club. 
when I got traded over. And they both had tremendous power. And this, this was, this was uh, the best story about Murph. Before I had gotten there, Dale Murphy had been a catcher. Okay, so he was catching, and, and I guess he was throwing the ball down to, to second pace, and he was hitting the pitcher on the back and all that stuff. <laughs> then they moved him to first base, and uh, he didn't do well over there. So they, when they traded for me, they put me at first base, and Murph had never been in the outfield. That spring, he was to uh, do his drills in the outfield, but what he did is he stood in left field for batting practice for almost everybody hitting, and he would react off of balls in left field. And before spring was over, he was like the best outfielder on the club. And that was testament to that is that they moved the next year, they moved him to center field, and, and he was running all over the place making plays center field and right field. He, that's how dedicated he was. Just a wonderful human being and, 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 and a great hitter. If, he didn't, if his knees didn't get all messed up, he would have you know, gone a lot, a lot further. You know, Murph, Murph was a great ball player. Chris, I want to thank you so much for coming on, buddy. You know, uh, you're one of the all-time great class guys that I ever played with and uh, always a gentleman. And uh, I just wanted to... Uh, Thank you for for uh, for coming on and sharing some great stories with us today. Well, thanks for thinking of me, Bucky. I appreciate it, and uh, it was it was great playing with you. Also, we we had a lot of fun together. You saved a lot of errors for me, pal. <laughs> <laughs> no, you had a you you had you had that arm. It was perfect. You threw you threw the ball right on the money. Well, well thanks, thanks. Well, listen, man. Good luck and tell tell your family I said hello and uh, we'll see you down the road when this pandemic gets over. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Chris. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, guys. We look forward to seeing both of you guys back in the Bronx. All right. That sounds good. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. What a what a class guy. I always say he's one of the, you know, they always say Hondo was a gentle giant. I always say that he is one of the nicest guys you will ever want to meet. I played with him, I coached with him, you know, and he's just just a super, super individual guy. The thing with having a guy like Chris on, Bucky, and I'm not trying to tell you anything you don't know here, but there are just certain moments in baseball history that you see a million times and that you think you know everything about. And obviously one of them is your, your home run, but... You know, you get to hear Chris talk about that moment. And yeah, uh, we can all close our eyes and see that moment and see him running around the bases and tripping and falling, all these things. But, you know, when you're talking to the guy who actually did it, it's so special. It really is. I mean, he's, you know, like you say, you know, that's one of the great home runs in history, you know, and it, it, it started the Yankees winning again. But, you know, for him to do it, he was just awesome. You know, it's a thrill for me is doing this episode with the authors of two of the most famous home runs in baseball history on the same episode, the same call. So, you know, great call, for Bucky, in, in bringing Chris in and, and you know, putting him uh, with you. That's pretty sweet. He's always been on my list. You know, one of, like I say, one of the class guys, one of the nicest guys you ever want to meet. And, uh, you know, quietly one of the, the big guys that played on our team in, uh, in the 70s and uh, was a heck of a hitting coach. And, uh, you know, you just, you just remember guys like that. And I'm glad we were able to get him on. Well, Bucky, Al, another good one. Thank you guys so much. And I can't wait to do it again in a couple of weeks. Me too. I'm ready. Sounds good. To all of you, thank you for listening to another episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. You should also check out the Yankees Magazine podcast, where we break down some of our written stories from each new magazine issue, and of course, talk Yankees baseball. If you're not subscribed, what are you waiting for? 
We're available wherever you listen to podcasts or at yankees.com slash podcast. Leave us a review. Leave us a rating. You can even send us your thoughts over email, podcast at yankees.com. And for Yankees Magazine subscribers, it's been pretty exciting getting to write Yankees baseball again. If you're not a subscriber yet, what are you waiting for? Call 800-GO-YANKS or go to yankees.com slash publications to start a subscription now. Or you can even buy one as a gift. The holidays are coming up and I can't think of anything better than giving the gift of Yankees baseball. Plus, if you'd like to see our content online, get a taste of it at yankees.com slash magazine. There you'll find our latest features to read from the magazine. And we're also on Twitter at Yanks Magazine. Give us a follow and be up to date with every podcast and magazine we produce. That's it. See you next time and go Yanks. Hi, this is Luke Voigt. If you like what you're hearing, why don't you rate and review us? And while you're at it, tell your friends to subscribe. Thanks so much, and go Yankees.